Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series created specifically for tourism operators. Talking Tourism, the expert series, is the ultimate resource for business owners who want to lift their skills to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a better tourism operator, listen on. This is Talking Tourism and I'm today's host, Sam Denmead. Every fortnight, the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania brings you conversations with the brightest minds in the tourism industry. TICT is the peak body for tourism operators in the beautiful state of Tasmania. Each episode of Talking Tourism will deal with a specific tourism-related topic with tips and advice for improving your tourism business and helping you get ahead in the visitor economy. You might be listening to this outside of Tasmania. If so, welcome. The content of these podcasts will be relevant for your tourism business wherever you're based, and we hope that you get something out of each of these episodes. Today, though, we are going to be talking about events, specifically arts and cultural events, and we have an amazing array of events in Tasmania, but one stands out in the arts and culture side of things, and it's called The Unconformity. Uh, Sitting with me today is the artistic director and one of the founding members, I suppose, of The Unconformity, Travis Titty. Welcome, Travis. G'day. Good to be here. Thank you for coming all the way in from Hobart where you live, but run your event on the West Coast. Tell me a bit about how a West Coast boy such as yourself gets to be organising one of the most highly sought after and regarded arts events or festivals or whatever you want to call it uh, in Tasmania and your story. Ah, thanks. Yeah, well, I, as, as you said, I was born and raised on the West Coast. Um, I think I'm a third generation West Coaster, although my mum's family side of things say we're a fifth, so it's a little <laughs> bit contestable. Um, I My personal story is I left the West Coast and went to higher education, went through the School of Art in Hobart and did a year of honours there and then travelled for um, uh, quite a while. And then when I came back to Tasmania, I went back to live with mum and dad for a few months and this was around about 2008, 2009. Um, and I joined a local tourism association called Project Queenstown. Uh, now, Project Queenstown had been um, existing since 1984. Um, so I was one when they when they started. <laughs> and uh, they, at that time, as is the case with regional groups, they ebb and flow depending on who's involved and especially an organisation that's been around for that long. Um, So what they did, which I think was a really good move, was to survey its local municipality and say, hey, this is us at the moment. What do you think is important for the future? Uh, Even understanding local business confidence, even questions about how would you describe your surrounding landscape, which brought out some really interesting ideas about how local people on the West Coast view the moonscape and all these really unique characteristics of the West Coast and Queenstown. But one of the very key things that came back was People identified in the survey that in Queenstown in particular, they didn't have a festival. You know, we didn't have that annual or biannual event, which could be this unifying um, sort of local event, creates pride, economic stimulus, all that sort of thing. Um, So we took note of that and we decided, well, we asked the question, (laughs) we're probably going to be the organisation to put this on. So that led to the very first Queenstown Heritage and Arts Festival, which started in 2010 from a basis of knowing nothing, like really nothing about putting on an event um, that was its genesis, local need. So who was on the committee? Was it all tourism operators or was it a bunch of business owners or what was the reason for the committee? Yeah, it was. you could call it a, a type of township committee or a civic sort of leader type, uh, type membership. So um, tourism business owners, 
members of local council, um, members of the local retail and, you know, um, I guess economic development sort of sort of interest points and just interested community members. So, so it's kind of like a Chamber of Commerce but not? In, in a way, yeah, but probably less formal than that. So it was yeah. an incorporated association. Yep. Um, and had a had a very broad remit, so it would it would be the go to committee for the West Coast Council to come and talk with such things as, hey, we've got this new, um, you know, uh, campaign for the coming tourism season. What do you think? Hey, we're going to close this road and reconfigure it. What do you think about that? Um, and it also interfaced with Cradle Coast Authority as the the RTO um, uh, in Queenstown. So it was a it was a fairly significant and important organisation through, you know, for a couple of decades there. I want to keep talking about that, but I do want I'm conscious of the fact that some of our listeners may not understand the context of Queenstown or the West Coast even that may not have been there. Can you kind of describe back in two thousand and eight how Queenstown sat and what 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 the sentiment of the town was like and what was happening in tourism terms? So the West Coast of Tasmania is a landmass of, a, we've realised more recently, about a quarter of the size of Ireland. We're talking about a very part, big part of Tasmania, but only 4,000 people live in the entire region. Uh, it's about a four-hour, four-and-a-half-hour drive from Hobart and from Launceston. And to explain what that experience is like, you'll be driving through genuine World Heritage rainforest, um, very mountainous, snow-capped peaks, down through valleys, and then eventually you'll get to... Queenstown, and that town is almost the exact opposite. It's a mining town, and generations of mining have completely destroyed the landscape. So you've got this moonscape environment that in the 1980s was fairly bare, but these days is is regrowing, but slowly. So you'll you'll notice the difference in the landscape very very suddenly, and it's also very wet. We actually measure rainfall in metres in Queenstown and on the west coast, so three and a half metres of rainfall per year. And then you'll drive down a winding road uh, down the moonscape and you'll land in the Queenstown Valley uh, amidst a very small, tight-knit community. So it's a very specific place. Um, It's a very special place. So 2008, the west coast would have been promoted largely on the back of this wilderness destination. but really, you know, Strawn was the, the really large focus of that in many ways in the sense that there was such momentum around the Gordon River Cruise, you know, this sort of billing as the best small town in the world, which I think was, you know, nine, nine or eight years before, but the momentum around 2008 around that was still strong. Um, so really, Queenstown was grafting its way forward as an, as an industry town, you know, reliant on, heavily reliant on mining, um, but also heavily reliant on tourism. Uh, to prop up its economy, but the reality was you could consider it at that stage to be probably still having an aspect of being a drive-through town, you know, with the majority of visitors on their way to and from Strawn and, you know, onto Cradle and, and other parts of, of the region. So in Queenstown itself, uh, it became a town where you might stop for lunch, a coffee, but didn't necessarily choose to stay overnight. Was yeah. that part of the thing, part of the remit for the committee to try to change that overnight visitation? Uh, look, when I say we we had little experience in putting on an event, I think we started off with a very soft and warm and fuzzy feeling of this will socially be a good thing for the town without that deeper understanding of, of what it would be or what it might evolve into. So it was really um, a bare bones beginning that started through community desire and even those initial meetings that we had in what were the old council chambers at the time, 
you know, with images of Daryl Garrity on the wall as the mayor and, you know, all these sort of people. This is the environment in which we were in. Um, we spoke with people about what should this first festival be. And um, locally we had Raymond Arnold, a very significant visual artist and printmaker. He'd been doing a lot of work in Queenstown, getting a lot of momentum around him. And we thought, look, you know, the arts is probably where we should land with this. Um, that was also my background, so maybe a bit of bias coming in there. But I think, um, you know, generally the nature of Queenstown, you know, being an industry town, I think the idea that artistically we could create an event and bring people here was a bit of a new idea. So we thought, let's let's go for it. And did you model the original idea on another event or did you just have this idea in your head, you just went with it? We just went with it. Like <laughs> nice. when, when I say we started with <laughs> for the third time, yeah. <laughs> we, we okay, had little, <laughs> little experience. Um, and that's been an interesting part of our journey, I think, because uh, we've had a learning mindset from you know, 10 years ago, even through till now, which is, an, which is a really healthy um, sort of ethos to have with this type of activity, I think. So what did 2008 look like compared to 2018? Oh, goodness. Well, in terms of our organisation. And the event itself, the for event a, as itself. a consumer, what did they see different? Uh, the, the initial event um, was very focused on an artistic program but a heritage program as well. Um, that felt important to us because, uh, you know, at that stage, the West Coast, its story is so defined by its history. You know, this, uh, this impact of, of mining and the colonisation of mining, the, the gravel football oval, the bare hills, um, the up and down nature of the economy, you know, the heartbeat of that town just tied to the pulse of the mine, you know, this this identity is so strong and so thorough and that's an historical identity and I think we reached into that, you know, through reflex almost. This is, an, this is a heritage festival uh, as well as an arts festival. Um, but we, we noticed really quickly that we had probably, you could consider an older audience came. Um, so that, you know, we're talking about a part of the world which was economically heaving, you know, during the era of the Great Depression and during the the big, you know, the the part the, the time when Zion was was looking likely to be the state's uh, capital city and and so family connections across the state and further abroad outside of Tasmania are really strong connecting back to the west coast. So we noticed during the festival that that diaspora of people really came back it became almost a homecoming type event. Um, and that was true for the first 3 uh, Queenstown Heritage and Arts Festivals. Um, we very quickly decided that uh, we would stick to a biennial format um, because the capacity locally was was low. You know, we are talking about a small town, and so for those first three events, um, yeah, we had probably an older audience, um, highly appreciative audience. And we refined the concept, um, but you could say 2019 compared to then or 2020 is markedly different in terms of audience, organisational makeup, et cetera, and that's been a big journey for us. Yep. So what sort of, um, just for those who haven't been to the Uncle Forty, what could they expect to see on your program, just to give them a quick outline? Yeah, well, I guess the conversation thus far has been about what we were, which was a visual arts program, aspects of heritage programming, et cetera. I think the really interesting thing that we established then was a sense that this place is so unique, you know, so utterly different to other parts of Tasmania that there really isn't any logic in bringing experiences or art into the West Coast for the festival. 
So very early on, we established this methodology of creating the full program from scratch. And to the unconformity in 2000 and, well, the next one in 2020 in October still upholds that core tenet that uh, this is a 100% created festival from the ground up every two years. However, some of the key differences are that we now embrace a really diverse artistic program across different art forms. So we have dance, we have theatre, um, we have music in strange locations, um, we have visual arts still, we have film aspects. Um, we're not really uh, grounded or, or uh, don't have any boundaries about what we might take on, but we're more interested in relationships with artists and people and seeing what evolves through spending time there. And because of a relative lack of cultural infrastructure, it means we're doing really unusual things. So in 2018, we had Taz Dance doing a dance performance within the Queen River. Now, I guess listeners probably know what that means. You know, it's a bright orange river. Um, it's still heavily polluted. And so, you know, in Queenstown, it didn't really make sense to have uh, dancers just go on a stage and be within a, a venue sort of space. So we put them into this, you know, really... Um, interesting in new location and that's true of the entire program so probably if I could distill it down um, a, an unconventional set of experiences that are actually spread throughout the whole valley so you arrive in Queenstown and you know that the unconformity is on. And so when you first started the the event uh, it was called the Queenstown Arts and Heritage Festival you a few years ago changed to the unconformity can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, I guess um, one of the really nice things with, I guess, continuity of a board and myself as the founding artistic director is that you can plan well in advance. So we knew in 2014 that would be evolving beyond the trilogy of Queenstown Heritage and Arts Festivals. Um, the reason for that was that we, we were observing a different type of sort of cultural consumer coming to Tasmania, an inbound visitor, um, you know, interest around Mona, what was it, what would it become, and that energy. And that was translating into a lot of excitement, a lot of exposure and a lot of visitation, and yet we felt that the West Coast really wasn't participating in this story. Uh, and, you know, I've got, a, I've got a very strong belief that every six to seven years is a renewal moment. I think that's important. Uh, and so we were coming up against six years of doing the Queenstown Heritage and Arts Festival so we started researching how we could contemporise our brand in order to speak to a different audience. And when we started digging into some of those core concepts of Queenstown and the West Coast, you know, that difference, the sort of paradoxical nature of, um, you know, being amidst a World Heritage listed um, part of the world and yet we've got this decimated landscape that sits in the, in the middle of it at Queenstown and the moonscape, you know, the high rainfall, just the challenge of being there, that proposition being really unconventional, we thought, how do we bring all these forces together? And it led us to start looking into the story of our local geology, what what underpins that and what's led this sort of colonisation. And we came across this feature at the Mount Lyell Mine called the Hawley Junk Conformity. And that was, that represented the coming together of three geological ages that actually touch. It's a really rare um, example of an unconformity, which is a geological term. And once we, we had that light bulb moment, I actually remember where I, I was sitting in a car at Salamanca and I remember just sitting there thinking, oh, that's it, it's the unconformity because it also speaks to this really specific idea of the people who live there. You know, 
not conforming, doing things their own way. Um, so it had a real, real depth and real, real lay, laid sort of set of meanings to it. Um, we also really like the fact that it stripped Queenstown out of the title. Now, Queenstown, uh, New Zealand, just cannibalises the, the online digital space. So how do we actually do something really different? And we took festival out of the title. It's just called The Unconformity. Um, so uh, I guess, you know, it was a leap of faith and it had elements of risk to it, but we thought that going down this approach would, you know, pair in with that growing expectation of coming to Tasmania and seeing something that is very specific, very contemporary and has uh, boldness and risk and, yeah, it's paid off. Okay, so you and the Unconformity don't shy away from the history, the mining history, the warts and all approach that you're not hiding anything that Queenstown has to offer. I think that actually is part of the appeal to not just people from Tasmania but interstate international visitors to to come to it, to see the Unconformity. It, why, why, is, why is that so appealing? Why has that curiosity been something that's been driving such good visitation to your v- event? Yeah, it's, uh, it was an interesting approach to take. Um, we, we've never used images of our festivals to promote the unconformity. So we focus on the spirit of the West Coast or the spirit of Queenstown and trying to, I guess, amplify that through how we talk about what we are and what the experience will be. And conventionally, you well, we've noticed on the West Coast that there's a real focus on trying to grab onto what's perceived to be positive aspects of communities or places and talk about that, especially if you're talking on a national stage or an international stage, that you'll try and market what you feel is the the strength, the positive, the positivity. So that means that things like the Orange River that runs through the middle of your town, what do you do with that? How do you talk about that? Um, and to us, that's who we are. You know, that's the story. Um, you know, we, we don't shy away from talking about the fact that as kids we chase footies down that river. Our ankles didn't really melt away. We're still here. But that's that's the connective tissue between people who come to a place and being able to understand and feel that place. And that's so often the thing that feels lost within, I guess, destination um, promotion or, or the idea of going to a place and feeling like you've got a, a real sort of connective sort of emotional sort of sense of it. Um, so... The Unconformity Unashamedly is a place branding device and we've almost intuitively known that for a long time but uh, I guess over over recent years we've been able to, you know, more finely tune that and actually start being a little bit more playful and creative with that as well and, and throw around some different messages. So how do the people of Queenstown feel about the Unconformity? Yeah, well, the Queenstown Heritage and Arts Festival format was really loved locally Um it's every, every iteration would bring, you know, over half a million dollars of economic spend. The energy in the town would be really significant. Um, That's not by accident, though, is it? You you guys have done a lot of work behind the scenes building community engagement. That's right. It's the nature of the people who run this thing are from the region. And I think that's a really powerful distinction so often you will see something of this nature or, or something as forward-facing as this, as the unconformity and, and ambitious being taken to a regional location with people who, ha- who have that specific skill set. We've actually evolved that skill set as an operational team, a creative team and as a governance team together. Um, but 
we had that moment of renewal into the unconformity 2016. I think we missed a pretty big step in believing that the energy and the mystery and the rebrand would sort of carry local people. And in hindsight, we should have communicated that better. So 2016 was a bit bumpier because we we tried to land this new idea in this environment where people would be, you know, drawn in and, and might be curious about it. Uh, but, you know, really up until the lead-in lead to the, the actual festival experience, we hadn't really explained what the unconformity meant because we wanted people to fill that space themselves. Mm. Um, so we, we wore, you know, lost a bit of skin in 2016. I'm not, you know, I'm happy to, to say that. Um, but uh, ever since then, um, and, and that's not universally, we've got a lot of people who love the event. Um, and ever since then, we've just noticed the support has strengthened and really doubled down. And I think... Combined with that is the fact that you cannot actually do something this ambitious with this scale to it within a you know such a remote location without actually investing in inf- infrastructure around it. So we've got a community space on the ground in Queenstown that we're working on, um, which is a public space as well. Uh, we invest in programs for local artists um, in order to, co- to. We've got an acquisitive uh, commission program. We've got a seed funding program to assist local groups. Um, you know, all of our promotional material sort of goes through directly um, uh, onto social media and through onto Tourism Tasmania's brand platforms really seamlessly. There's all this infrastructure around it that actually enable think- the thing to happen. And I think uh, the, our investments in all of those sort of areas have also um, been, you know, taken up and embraced locally as well. I'd even uh, go so far as to say that a lot of the people around Queenstown, certainly in Tasmania, wouldn't have a clue about all of the stuff that you guys do um, in the background of of the unconformity. Like you just mentioned, you've got the the West Coast Art Prize and uh, the seed funding program and all sorts of other things you've just mentioned. Um, It's one of those situations where I think a lot of people out there feel like an event is just a one-off and the unconformity is very, very obvious in that it's not. It's a long-term commitment to the town and the West Coast, uh, to the art scene, and now tapping into tourism. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot more to it than just a you know, in and out event, which happens in other places sometimes. Yeah, I th- to me, that's important. Um, this can't be the circus that arrives in town and, and up and, you know, packs down afterwards and you don't, you don't see it for another two years. That's not the nature of what we do. And I think festivals are really intensive beasts to put on. They're very difficult, and especially if you're creating the program from scratch. Um, So with that level of investment, there's real logic to say that legacy outcomes need to be a part of it. You know, I I feel that quite strongly. Um, And in the West Coast, especially in Queenstown, you know, some of these towns are trying to reimagine themselves. So the Mount Lyle mine has been closed for six years. And that means that one of these grounding, uh, you know, this grounding sort of extractive industry that has underpinned the community, the social fabric of the place, underpinned its economy for generations, is really on one of its lowest ebbs at the moment. So what is Queenstown becoming? And that's, you know, we've known this day was coming and the, the mine may reopen and that's that's great. But in the absence of that, how do we actually talk about the future? How do we... Uh, I guess, throw around concepts and and provide a voice to people who mightn't commonly be heard when you talk about what the future may be within this place. So on that wavelength, I think festivals can be a really interesting type of model 
um, for regional activation and to provide a sense of confidence in local people and visitors and to road test new ideas. You know, I, I believe that really strongly. Um, and that's what we try and make with the unconformity. And, you know, it's people are taking notice, so it's interesting. So you can road test new ideas. I like that concept. I think that's a really clever way to trial, trial new things, pilot new ideas. Um, you do that in the arts and cultural scene. Can a tourism operator can tap into that road testing option and opportunity as well? Yeah, I believe so. So some of the, the core aspects of events or, you know, especially within the arts are that we like to take on risk. Um, we need to, to be to remain relevant to a national and international artistic audience. Our, our artistic program needs to be really strong and cutting edge. Um, there is the 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 fact that the, the festival brings all the infrastructure and brings all the audience um, and... You know that means I think, and and festivals in the, in their nature are really proactive around partnerships. So when you combine all of this, you've got an entity which is going to bring a heap of people to your location, um, which is really open to trialing new ideas because that's their game, that's their core business, and is really open to talking and doing things together. Which means, from you know a tourism operator point of view, there's the ingredients to tap into that and trial new ideas. And you know, we're realistic about the fact that. Tourism can be a tough game, especially in regional areas that can really be impacted by seasonality. You know, that's one of the, the core aspects of the West Coast. So it's not easy to actually invest in new concepts. You know, we get that. So that's where I feel that things like festivals, which might have a window of a weekend or two weekends, can actually be a bit of a testing ground and a playground to say, hey, I've got this offer and this product or this accommodation experience. Thinking laterally, how about I trial this? Um, or how about I talk about, you know, working with this other entity to, to package something else or, or you know, instead of the normal core proposition of, of trying to get people to stay for that extra day through conventional, um, uh, you know, upgrading or, or product offers, why don't we actually trial it in this direction this time? So I think that's something that uh, is true of us on the West Coast uh, through the unconformity, but I think that actually translates to events everywhere, to tell you the truth. I think it's interesting um, when you talk about events travelling to a destination for the event. It's not just, you know, say, for instance, Hobart. You stay at home, you go to the event during the day or the night and go home again. When people travel to Queenstown to attend the Unconformity, they're coming from either around Tasmania or interstate or international, they've got to stay there. So it's a bigger proposition than just having the Unconformity in Queenstown. There's accommodation and food and potentially car hire. There's all sorts of other tourism-related businesses that need to be involved so how, have you got any advice or any learnings that you could give to the listeners about how they can tap into this particular event or any other regional event? Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting um, type of investment for us as, as, you know, given that regionality because it takes nearly a full day for an audience, an inbound visitor who's coming, you know, what we think from the eastern sort of seaboard of Australia down to Tasmania then to somehow work their their travel arrangements if that's a high car or carpooling and then get to the west coast you throw in some touristic experiences on route or toilet stops and food breaks that's a full day getting there and a full day leaving so the ability to connect with somebody amidst that route is really high um, uh, and you know the reality for them is that the unconformity festival experience is starting when they're getting on the plane you know that's the that's the start of their journey and and that journey and that drive through you know let's face it it's one of the world's great drives you know going through either the Lyle Highway past Frenchman's Cap 
um, or conversely, you know, you go through Lake Plimsoll through mm-hmm. past Mount Murchison. A lot of people, interestingly, don't know that little shortcut through Lake Plimsoll, but it is stunning. It's absolutely stunning through there. I remember the first time I drove that. Um, I remember thinking distinctly, I can just imagine dinosaurs just walking towards me and that wouldn't be out of place. It just felt so right. It was That's so old, a landscape. so amazing. And so, you know, we've already got this, you know, key ingredient, which we try and amplify um, through some programming, soft programming en route. So that there's there's opportunities to connect in with that that wavelength. But I think if you were to, if you were to con- consider the nature of the audience, um, you know, an artistic audience and a cultural audience, generally they you know, you could consider them to be the pathfinders or the thought leaders. You know, for us, we we define that cultural audience as being independent, generally fairly progressive, um, having a flexible arrangement monetarily but also um, family-wise and really being up for the, the proposition or the challenge of having, you know, working harder and, and getting deeper into the, the experience. So they want to come to a place where you feel and they want to connect with it. They're not just there to do just the surface level experience. Um, so there's an opportunity to have a deeper connection with that person, even if it, you know, if they're staying in an accommodation business, it could be discussions around, look, here's the things to, that you can do to get off the track. And actually just having that uh, one-on-one connection, I think, can be really powerful. Um, aside from that, you know, they want good coffee. Mm. You know, they want to understand where to, where to connect with, you know, good food, great food and you know, they'll be curious. So I think there's opportunities around understanding the nature of the audience. And I think if you don't know who's coming to your local event, maybe talk to the event operate owners um, and managers and get them to just give you a rundown of, of who they may be. a good event, like the Unconformity, um, a good event will actually put on stakeholder workshops or information sessions, which highly encourage people to turn up to because that's the opportunity to not just learn about the event and how it can impact your guests when they come to stay with you or be with you, but also how you can tap into the event, learn about what type of audience is going to be there, and you can then tailor your product accordingly. Mm. And so you've already, you know, you've got you've got that advanced knowledge, so you can test new things, but also that opportunity to meet with with the operators of the event and develop relationships that way. So there's a possibility for joint promotion as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, we we're getting better at that because we've always we just hit our mark as accommodation wise um, given our capacity on the west coast. Accommodation owners always book out. Mm. Um, that's true of our three last events. So um, you know we're getting more and more understanding, I guess, about the needs of accommodation owners. So we will let them know in advance before the programming drops because we know that people want to book accommodation straight away. Um, we talk about how to incentivize you know, that longer term stay, you know, convert two to th- one to two and two to three sort of night stays. Um, but in the future, we're looking at how to um, maybe put out a, a toolkit or something like that that can help, as well as the meetings that we try and generate with the, with the sector locally, a toolkit to understand, okay, how do we tap into this, this audience? Um, because the opportunity is so rich, you know, um, we're getting... Well, it's interesting, a lot of these events, a lot of these cultural events heat meet Tasmanian government policy head-on because they bring a high-yield audience to regional locations um, and they're just there to be tapped into. So understanding how to do that effectively um, feels important and we're making gains in that space and we'll be doing some more proactive things around that uh, for our next event. Um, So from your point of view, you've been around the event for the last 10 years. Um, Have you got any advice 
for aspiring event directors? Anyone wants to start up a new event in their regional area? What what sort of things would you suggest they think about? Yeah, well, firstly, um, as most people would probably understand, it's it's such a highly competitive sector. Uh, the events calendar is is very full, not only in local regions across the whole state, interstate wise. Um, so the competition is fierce for weekend time of of, uh, of whether you know interstate or interstate audiences. So I think um, deeply understanding the core proposition of what you're doing uh, to me feels really important um, just to just to to build out that distinctiveness and you know one of the I'm coming from a very specific lens because we've got this this young conformity almost as a place making device it's uh, it's a very specific idea for how to do this in a place like Queenstown but if I'm to extend that line of thinking you look across the whole of the state and the real one of the real magical things about Tasmania is its diversity. Um, so I think uh, there's the ability for regions across the breadth of the state to really deeply analyse what makes this place special, and then tap into that on a cultural wavelength, and then start wrapping some infrastructure around that for an event to build an event. I think the opportunities are really rich. Um, however, I also don't want to skip over the fact that uh, it's it's hideously intensive putting on events and. It's something that I think is not well understood within the sector, or just in the general population. Because uh, when we go to events, we we engage with the front-facing program, we engage with the marketing, we engage with the front of house, you know, person. And through the nature of what they do, they're they're all about customer service. You're all um, telling people about the positive aspects of what they can engage with, without seeing that back end. That back end is hidden. And that back end is really, really intensive. And it almost doesn't matter what type of event you're working on. So within the event sector, um, it's really well known that burnout is an issue. It's really well known that people will be running on adrenaline and then we'll have the festival come down. Um, And in a way, uh, you know, people are up for it because the payoff is so huge. But um, I think it's something that needs to be understood by people who might be entering into the event or even if you're amidst it and you're you're understanding this at the moment, it's it's a it's a shared sort of experience by everybody who puts on events. So I think understanding that, being aware of burnout, reaching out for supporters and assistance, um, that's a key part of it as well. I think it's highly risky, isn't it, to run events because you're really at the whim of other people turning up on that weekend or series of weekends. Well, I, I believe it's one of the riskiest things you can actually do because the nature of you know, you're actually committing a lot of expenditure well in advance of revenues coming back if you're if you're actually selling tickets. Yeah. Um, you know, your event can be impacted by global forces. Yep. You know, something well outside your control. Absolutely. One of our biggest risks is that there's somebody has a severe accident on the highway. Yeah. Not only from a personal point of view, but or if there's a landslide on the highway yep. and people can't actually reach us. Well, and the weather in October when you run the unconformity, it could be anything. It's spring. It could snow and block the road. Exactly. Um, and then if you've got a very small team, which is the nature of the majority of events in the state, um, key person dependencies are huge. So they are they are really risky things to be doing, but they're well worth it because of all this other stuff that we've spoken about that comes with them and the payoff for both local people and for visiting audiences and the catalytic role that they play in regions, you know, in bleeding into tourism and bleeding into 
I guess, giving, you know, almost making places a little bit more aware of, you know, possibilities and potential and challenging the the sort of sense of a community and its place in the world. I think events and especially working with artists can can be important there. But, um, yeah, it really shouldn't be understood just the intensity of doing this thing in the first place. I think the key message here that I'm hearing loud and clear is and hopefully the listeners are taking on board, is get behind your events. If your event feels right for your region, it talks well to you know, helping define your place and your destination, get behind it, support it, be part of it, join in early, help promote it, attend it, talk it up, just help, help in every way you can. And you'll reap the benefits as well from a personal and a business perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the only reason we've been able to grow and evolve across 10 years is because we've had a wide supporting cast of characters and, you know, there's core people who are involved initially. There's, you know, I, I've got a, a, a really big focus on working with mentors and, you know, that's not through anybody approaching me, that's through, or any program, it's through understanding who's the right person to be talking with in this space and then just connecting in and seeing if they're open to having coffees mm. and talking things through. I'm a big believer in that. Um so, you know, I think to me that's, that's an, you know, the, it's important to have a learning mindset and especially within the festival space because, you know, I believe that evolving and just remaining on top of trends and almost being ahead of the game, you know, I think on the West Coast nothing like the unconformity had existed before it arrived and we're now seeing more and more things or programs or campaigns on this wavelength on the West Coast in particular. So I think there's a function for us to keep on being nimble and evolve again and see if we can be those thought leaders and just creating the new experience. So I think um, understanding all of that and supporting all of that is uh, is really helpful when you're, you know, a part of the team, a part of the core team trying to, you know, create that new, that new line of thinking. Amazing. I hope everyone out there is now getting their calendars out with the uh, get the pen and paper out, write down the dates of the 2020 unconformity. When, when's the next one being held? Uh, it's the 16th to the 18th of October, Just 2020. Happened. Brilliant. Book, book your accommodation yeah, exactly. soon. <laughs> book your accommodation soon. And if you've got an, a, a tourism business in and around the West Coast that hasn't heard of the unconformity, hasn't met Travis, I don't know how, but that may be that you're new or whatever the reason, make sure you attend those stakeholder workshops and industry information sessions. Get on board. Those people around Tasmania and around the around the country listening, make sure you come along to the next one. Have you got anything else you would like to share with listeners around events? Um, look, no, it's uh, probably just um, we're in the, the national finals with the Tourism Award, which is really exciting. Yeah. So the West Coast, it feels really good to be representing the West Coast in this space. Um, uh, so, yeah, the, the recent news is from, I guess, uh, um, you know, for a town of 1,800 people, we took out two gold awards recently with the West Coast Wilderness Railway as well. So that's exciting. Um, and, uh, yeah, watch this space. It would be amazing if one of us can take out a national award. So West Coast, watch this space. If anyone wants any more information about The Unconformity, you can jump online at theunconformity.com.au. That has a breakdown of all of our programs, how to get in contact, uh, or you can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Just look up The Unconformity and you'll see current news and images of what we're up to, etc. Well, thank you, Travis. Thanks for coming along today. Uh, I hope the listeners got some value out of our conversation. Um, we hope that you've also learnt a bit about events and the 
highly complex nature of the background of running an event. So again, thank you, Travis Tiddy, the Unconformity Artistic Director, for coming in today. Uh, so if you enjoyed today's show, tell your tourism colleagues to take a listen too. There's a heap more pod, uh, episodes of our podcast on the TICT website. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight with another conversation on Talking Tourism. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism.